And here we are in the last message from this Living Hope series through First Peter. So you're going to need a copy of God's Word. And as always, if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one as a gift. It's actually in between the two trees out in our Welcome Center. Please take one of those as our gift to you this morning. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the book of 1 Peter is one of the 66 books that make the Holy Bible that we study and read and learn about who our God is and His will for our life. And 1 Peter is on the right side of that, almost towards the very end. So go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and make your way there. And I would just say, if you are a visitor with us or a guest, uh, we've been going through the series for the last several months on living hope, what we have in Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. And you can hop on um, Apple Podcasts and find those messages if you've missed. But I would just invite you, if you are a guest, to stick six with us. Stick six weeks uh, so you can kind of hear the heartbeat of our church. Let us uh, get to know you and put a face with a name. And so just invite you to stick six with us. Now, I know some of you were uh, thinking as you woke up this morning, um, it's December, it's feeling a lot like Christmas, and then you walk outside and it's 70 degrees. And uh, some of you are hoping that maybe we'd be diving into our Christmas series today, but since it's 70 degrees, we just pushed it back one more week, right? So next week, we'll start our Christmas series on Christmas lights. And this is going to be a really sweet series as we look at the beginning of Isaiah, where it talks about the people of God going through a very dark time and how the Lord was the light. And so we'll talk about that through our Christmas series. So excited about that. And uh, if you were here before service, you got to hear Daniel Ford lead us in some special music that was Christmas music, and uh, we'll do that every single week. So come here early to hear some special music before we start service. And if you remember, this year, in 2023, we focused in on prayer as a church. We wanted to take steps of prayer, whether you had never prayed before or you had no rhythms of your life, taking some kind of regular steps to pray, or whether you were a faithful prayer and you had a journal of all these prayers you've been praying, some kind of step of faith to pray. So we gave you resources throughout this entire year. Uh, one, like 40 days of prayer uh, going into Easter and another one for missions focus. And we want to give you one for parents or grandparents to kind of end the year. It's not a 30 days of prayer or anything like that. It's just kind of a one-time uh, craft that you'll do with your kids. You can get some back there at Next Steps or up where you check your kids in. But this is a resource where you'll get to do a craft with your kids, celebrating the birth of Christ, read a little passage of scripture, and then pray with them. Because we want to set an example. We want to see the, the, our, our kids in the next generation, our grandkids, see what prayer looks like. And so I just really invite you to take that free resource and be intentional to continue to grow your family's prayer life uh, in 2023. One last thing before we dive into 1 Peter is at the turn of the year, right after Christmas, we'll do our big vision casting for 2024. 2023, our focus was prayer, and we dove in deep there. Uh, we've got a one-word focus for 2024, and on January 7th, 7th we're going to have our Vision Focus Sunday to talk about where we're going as a church in the next year. So mark your calendar for uh, January 7th, and we'll look at what God has in store for us as a church in 2024. All right, with all that being said, let's come to the final instructions that Peter gives to us in 1 Peter, beginning in verse 6. The word of the Lord says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, verses 12, 13, and 14 are kind of the signature, the sign-off, the P.S., if you will, to the letter. And Peter says this, Valsalvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. So greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all who are in Christ. Bow your heads with me. Lord, you know how distracted our hearts can be. And so we need your help. Would you give us a delight in your truth? Lord, help us to humble ourselves, to sit under your word, instead of trying to to lord over your word. Lord, would you show us your steadfast love and power through this passage in 1 Peter. Send your spirit to work among us that would make our hearts submissive to your commands and and our minds attentive to your desire for our lives. Now, as we unpack God's word, would you pray silently to God and ask him to enlighten your mind and your heart to both understand and to believe his word today? Would you pray that in this time of silence right now? Pray for me too, that the words in my mouth would be pleasing to the Lord and helpful to you as you follow his will for your life. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, may you be glorified today as you strengthen the saved and as you seek out the lost. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, who are believers, this letter is written to the church, it's written to believers. And Peter, as he closes out, is going to give three departing instructions to us. Three critically important things for us to know and to apply to our life. And so the first is this, to humble yourselves. Humble yourself. You see that in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore. Now, Brandon talked about it last week as we looked at verse 5, where this call to humble ourselves means that we consider others as more important than ourselves, that we stop thinking of ourselves so much and we think of others. We stop thinking of ourselves so much and we start thinking of God more. This is what a, a glimpse of what humility looks like. This is the call. Now, the temptation might be for us, especially since we've been here and focused on prayer in 2023, that uh, you think, well, what this is telling me to do is that I need to pray that God would humble me. And you can certainly pray that. Um, That is a very scary prayer to pray. Okay, You just need to understand that. If you pray, God, humble me, he will be faithful, he will do that. But listen, hear me out. Nowhere in Scripture does it tell us to pray that God would humble us. Nowhere in Scripture. This passage does not say pray for God to humble you. What does it say? 
humble yourselves. <laughs> that we would intentionally look at our lives and examine it and that we would humble ourselves to consider others more, to love others more, to love the Lord more, that we would humble ourselves. Now, God in his goodness is going to speak to a lot of the insecurities in our hearts as we think about that command. Because we think, humble ourselves before the Lord. Ryan, no, 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 no. You don't understand. (laughs) If I think of others as more important than myself, then like I'm going to get kind of walked over and used as a doormat. No, 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 no. I've got to make sure to push myself forward so that people notice me at work, so that I get a promotion. Or I've got to push myself forward in this, this sports arena because this is an area that people need to see me and know me so that I become famous and people really lift me up. You don't understand, Ryan. If I consider others as more important and I love them and I serve them and I humble myself, then, then I'm going to be overlooked and I'm going to be forgotten. And if I'm just honest for a second, if, if, if I release control of these things and let somebody else kind of have authority, then man, I'm going to be so forgotten. And overlooked. And so, what is the problem with that? God tells us that if we think like that, we're missing out on one of the huge parts of that equation. What does it say? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you. If you think I can't humble myself because I'll be overlooked or forgotten, or somebody else will move up, or somebody else will be exalted and not me, then you're completely taking God out of the equation. We're completely missing the reality that our God is sovereign, that He is mighty, that He's over all things. So we bow the knee to Him, and we listen to His commands, and we love and we serve others, and we trust that in the proper time, God will work. Now, once again, The proper time isn't always our time. It's God's time. That God in the proper time, he might exalt us. So we trust in his mighty hand. We humble ourselves before this God who is a sovereign and mighty God. Now, the second thing that kind of stirs up in our hearts, possibly for you, as you think about humbling yourself is if I humble myself and I think about others and I pour myself out for others and I be generous for the sake of others, then who's going to care for me? Who's going to look out for me if I'm thinking of myself less? Who's going to think about me? And God's word speaks to that insecurity as well in verse 7. It says, casting all of your anxieties on him. When we humble ourselves... Anxieties are going to fill our hearts in a number of different ways. As we start to trust in the Lord more, release control, we'll have anxieties. And God says, cast all these anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do not take God out of this equation. If you try to live out this command apart from God, this is a This is a rough command. This is a hard command. But if you do it underneath the strength and mighty hand of God, under the big heart of the Lord who cares for us, then when those anxieties come in, we cast them upon the Lord. Now, that word for cast there, it's really important. In the Greek language, which this is written in, this word is in an aorist tense. So what that means is you, you cast those anxieties, and then you leave them there. 
But the problem is, too often we read that and we think through our American woodsman mindset and we think about cast our anxieties and we live a lot like this when we're fishing, right? We, we'll, we'll, we'll cast them out there, our anxieties, we'll cast them to the Lord and then we'll slowly start to reel them back in. And God's word is like, no, 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 cast them and leave them. So what we'll do is we'll say, okay, cast my anxieties. All right, I'm, I'm concerned or I'm worried about what retirement looks like for me. Am I going to have enough money? And so we'll say, okay, I'll pray, God. You've said in your word you'll provide for me my daily bread, so I'm going to trust in you for that. And so we'll pray, and you'll feel better for a little bit, and then we'll turn on the news, and we'll see the stock market, and we'll slowly reel that anxiety back in again. Or we'll look at our, our health and we'll get anxious or worried about our health and our life. And we'll say, okay, I need to pray and I need to trust that God will heal, whether it's now or in the eternity ahead, but he will. But we'll start to pray and we'll start to trust in those truths we find in God's word and have that living hope. But then when God doesn't heal in our timing, we'll start to reel those anxieties back into our heart again instead of casting it on him and trusting in him. Some of us have had the anxiety around our job, and we've just been praying, God, would you give us contentment in our job? We're, we're really trying to be content with where you have us, but we're really struggling. And so we'll pray, okay, God, give me contentment, and we'll have contentment for a little bit of time, and then complaints will start to come up in our hearts and our minds again, and we'll slowly reel back in that anxiety and let it cozy up next to our complaints. God is saying, no, that's not how it works. We trust in his mighty hand. We trust in his big heart that loves us, and we cast it on him. Why? Because his shoulders are broad enough to carry our greatest anxieties. We have a great God that loves us and wants to lean into those things. And so we cast it all on him. And so maybe you don't worry about one of those things. Maybe it's not retirement for you or healing, or maybe it's not contentment. Maybe it's something different. But, but notice in the text, and maybe you need to highlight it, underline it, mark it, but it says casting all, all of your anxieties on him. So whatever your struggles are, you bring it before the Lord and you cast it upon his broad shoulders and you leave it. You leave it there. So you can cast your sorrows and depression on him. You can cast your trials and temptations on him. Most importantly, you can cast your sins and shame upon him. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, it tells us that, that Jesus is our burden bearer, that God the Father laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. It cast it all on him. Jesus does that because he loves us. So no matter what it is that you're carrying, that burden, humble yourself enough to say that, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And cast these anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you, verse 7 says. He cares for you. And if I could nerd out for a little bit on the Greek here, that cares for you literally is translated to him. It matters about you. To him, it matters about you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he knows your kids' names? 
He knows what you're worried about that wakes you up in the middle of the night. He knows what wakes you up early in the morning. God knows all of those things. He knows all of your concerns. He knows your sicknesses. He knows all of your cares. He knows all of them. And he says, cast it on me. This is the goodness of God. I hope you see this. This is the goodness of God. We do not have a God who's up in heaven who's saying, man, you guys stop stressing out and stop worrying. Just take all your worry and stress and like stuff it down deep in your heart and never talk about it, right? Like that's where it goes. No, that's not what God's word says. He says, no, we're in a broken world. There's hardship and there's sin that, that impacts us and changes us and influences us. No, you take all of that and you bring it to me. You take all of that and you bring it to me. Why? Because I care for you. I know that you're overwhelmed in this area. I know that there's different stresses and struggles. Come to me. He wants to carry them. Would we humble ourselves enough to believe in who God is that we could bow the knee to him? And just like Parker's story, that we can bow that knee and trust that he is more than enough. All these other things I've been pursuing won't satisfy. God is more than enough. Do you believe that? In order to humble yourself, you're going to have to believe it. Do you believe that God is strong enough to take care of you if you humble yourself? Because he has a mighty hand. Do you believe that God is wise enough to know the proper time how to care for you? This passage says, yes, in the proper time, he will exalt you. Do you trust in his wisdom? Do you believe that he's an all-wise God? And yes, he's mighty, and yes, he's all-wise, but, but do you believe that he's loving enough to care for you. That's what this passage tells us. That he cares for you. Do you trust in the Lord? Do you trust in the Lord enough to humble yourself, to, to release your arrogance, to release your anxieties, and trust in his strength, his wisdom, and his love? Well, church family, may we do that to live out this instruction to humble ourselves before the Lord. The second instruction he's going to give us as he's closing out this letter is to resist the devil. You see that in verses 8 and 9. Peter wants us to understand the reality that we have an enemy. We have an enemy that's working against us and battling against us. And so he gives three descriptions of the enemy in this one verse. First, he says he's, he's an adversary. The first thing he tells us about our adversary and what that word adversary means is that he is a, an opponent. And this is legal language right here. If you are a defendant, you come into court and there's a prosecuting attorney there who's making accusations against you. That is our enemy. That is Satan. Now, some, some good news for us. The scripture tells us that we have an advocate, right? We have a defense attorney. And it's the Holy Spirit who's shielding us against those accusations and reminding us of the truth of God's word. But Peter's like, there's an adversary. There's a real one here that's fighting and warring against us. The second description is he calls him the devil in verse 8. He's not just an adversary, he's the devil. Now, when we hear the word devil, we think of blue leotards, basketball team, Right? Or we think of a, a red guy with little horns and a pitchfork. Like our minds kind of go to one of those two extremes. But that word devil literally means a, a slanderer or a liar. 
That's what it means. When you uh, hear that term devil, you need to be thinking liar. And Jesus gave that description in, in, in John chapter 8 where he says he's the liar and the father of lies. Satan whispers lies into our hearts and our minds all the time. All the time he whispers these lies. Well, we would open up our, our minds to, to notice these things, to notice that he's whispering lies to us. And the third thing it tells us about him is that he is the, he's a lion. And this language for like prowling, roaring language is reminiscent of two other passages of Scripture. All the way back to Genesis 4, as sin slowly snowballing up, you got this guy Cain who's going through a lot of anger issues and resentment. And God tells Cain, Cain, you, you, you better watch out because sin is crouching at your door. The same kind of imagery. And Jesus, you fast forward thousands of years and Jesus gets on the scene. He's like, hey, guess what? There's, there's this enemy, the devil, and he has a mission statement. We have a mission statement as a church based upon God's word of what he's called us to do. Satan has a mission statement too. And Jesus tells us what it is. His mission statement is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what he wants to do. He wants to wreck your life. He has nothing good in store for you. That's not his goal. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. And so when you kind of take these things and you roll them together, this idea that he's an accuser, that he's a liar, that he's a lion, we need to understand that Satan does not sink his teeth into our flesh. Instead, what he does is he sinks lies into our hearts to lead us astray. That's what he does. C.S. Lewis uh, has, a, has a great little book called Screwtape Letters where he talks about the two primary mistakes that believers make when it comes to Satan. He says, first... Some Christians give him way too much credit, way too much credit, like every flat tire I have was caused by the devil, or I lost my job this week because of the devil, and the reality is you might have lost your job because you came in late to work 10 days in a row, okay? That might have been why you lost your job. It's more you, right? So some people fall to that extreme of just saying, well, everything revolves around him and take no responsibility for their own sin and selfishness. Or the other extreme, honestly more problematic, especially for our culture and our time, is we live like he doesn't exist at all. Like there is no enemy, and there is no one that's coming after my heart and my soul and my mind. And, and so we don't even take notice of the lies that are being spoken to us in our hearts. We don't even hear the lies that are being spoken in our culture because we're not reading the truth of God's word. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle this? What's the healthy balance between these things? Well, Peter's going to give us four applications of what to do with this command. If we're supposed to resist the devil, we're supposed to resist the enemy, how do we do that? Well, he says in verse 8, first, to be sober-minded. Be sober-minded towards his schemes. That word sober is, has the same meaning back then as it did today of not getting drunk. This is the third time that Peter's mentioned it in this passage, or in this book, rather. Chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about it. Chapter 4, verse 7, he brings it up again, being sober-minded. And here again in chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded. So if he's going to mention it this many times in this short of a book, it's got to be important. It's not an accident. You see, I think the reason why he highlights this verse is because for many of us, when we deal with stress and anxieties like Peter just talked about, our temptation is to drown our problems in alcohol. 
trying to numb the pains of our hearts through alcohol. And Peter says that we cannot afford to drown our troubles in alcohol. We can't do it. There's an enemy at work, and he's trying to destroy you. He's trying to take a good gift of God and make it a bad God. He says we got to be aware. We have to be sober-minded. Not just sober-minded, but we need to be watchful. That's the next thing he says in verse 8. See, Satan is more than happy to stay camouflaged and attack us mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and we're unaware of him at all. He's more than happy. And so Peter's like, be watchful, pay attention, look at your life. Look at your life. See, sometimes we think we, we fall into to bad situations, we fall into temptation just by accident. Although we would take just a time and go back and say, man, what led me to here? We would look upstream to see, realize what drove us downstream. Then we would look at our life and examine it, be intentional to say, what is it that I'm watching? What is it that I'm putting before my eyes, whether on a, a screen or just in my everyday life? What am I, what am I looking at? And, and you know what? It could be good. You could be looking at the, the right things. You could be looking at the wrong things. But are we being intentional to watch and to see the temptations that are being woven into our life? The lies that are being whispered? And not just look at what we watch, but what do we think about? What is it that takes the mental space and capacity in your mind? What is it that you sit around daydreaming about? Is that honoring? Is that good? Is it pleasing to the Lord what you daydream about? Would you be watchful to examine our thought life? Would we be watchful to examine our hearts and what we desire? What is it that you look at and you're like, I would love to have that? And you continue to, to allow it to run through your mind over and over again. You kind of suck on it and enjoy it like a hard candy, the, the, the desire of your heart. Is that desire a God desire? Or is it a lie of the world? Well, we'd be watchful enough to examine and to study these things. We need to believe this truth. We'll, we'll be watchful if we believe the truth that there's an enemy out there that's warring against us. I did some research this last week and found out that the odds of being attacked by a shark is 1 in 3.7 million, okay? 1 in 3.7 million, which are pretty drastic odds, let's just be honest. And yet, some of you do not get in the ocean because of it. You're just honest, you're like, I will look at the water. My wife says I love what's above the water, the sunset, the breeze, but what's below the water is what I'm worried about, right? That's what concerns me. So we just stay out of the water, right? Now, it's a lower statistic, but it's still a real statistic that one in roughly two million people will get attacked by a bear this year, okay? Which one in two million, those are still pretty, pretty steep odds. And so they make things to protect you. They have like this little bear gun. You shoot it, she's like a flare out. There's some people that refuse to go into the woods because they're like, nope, there's a chance that I could be attacked by a bear or a raccoon or a snake or something like that. So I'm just not even going to go into it, right? And yet, when we come to this passage, God's word tells us that you have a one in one chance that you are going to be attacked by the enemy. And we live like he's not even out there. We're not being sober-minded, we're not being watchful, we're not even considering him. And God's word is saying, no, there's a one in one chance that the enemy is going to be working against you. 
So Peter's going to say, with that reality in mind, let's be a part of a community. Let's be a part of a Christian community. Did you notice something really simple, something small, but really important in verse 8? This lion, this, this adversary is, is doing what at the end of verse 8? Seeking someone to devour. Not some group, not some people. He's looking for the isolated. Isn't that how it worked on the Serengeti? Right? Like the the antelope that's farthest behind and that's alone, that's the one that gets attacked. And Peter's saying, that's what the enemy's looking for. For one who thinks, I'm good, it's just Jesus and me, and that's enough. No, God's word says you need to be a part of a community. I mean, just just look at what the text says. Peter reminds them again in verse 9, as we walk through suffering and pain in this life, there's a brotherhood. That means there's a group of people, there's a community of Christians that are out there going through the suffering and pain. Be a part of a community. And then he ends the letter by going through a list of people that have helped him. Talks about Savanius, that he's probably writing this down as Peter speaks it out. Talks about Mark that has served alongside him and he considers like a son. He talks about this this lady that's in Babylon, which most commentators believe he's speaking of the church, the bride of Christ there in Rome. And he's like, I'm a part of a church. Now, if anybody could have made a list of excuses of why he didn't need to be a part of community, Peter would have to be at the top of the list. Like, I walk with Jesus. I heard him teach. I heard every sermon come from the mouth of Jesus. I don't need community. I got Jesus alone. All you simpletons, you don't even understand. I have walked on water with Jesus, right? Like, I'm good. I don't need you guys. And yet Peter's like, no, we desperately need one another, we have an enemy that's looking for someone to devour. And so, no, let's, let's lean into community instead of away from community. We need community or we will fall to the attacks of the evil one. When I went to Kenya one year, I remember hearing um, some people talk about this famous tribe, the, the Maasai warriors, which some of you have seen pictures of this. It's incredible looking stuff up online, but the Maasai warriors over there uh, the way that you become a, kind of the title of Maasai warriors, you actually have to kill a lion. Uh, they hunt, they defend against, they kill lions with a spear, okay? Not like with a gun from a mile away. And you're like, how in the world did these people kill a lion with a spear even today? It's crazy. Well, what they do is they get out there and they, they look at the grass, and when you see the tall grass, kind of bending away from where the wind is blowing it, they know that there is an adversary there. They know that the lion is there. They're watchful. They notice it. So what they do is they kind of surround that area, and they make a bunch of noise to agitate the lion, to bring it out so it can't stay in its camouflage, it can't hide. And they will work together as a group of people, and as the lion comes out to attack one of them, they all surround it together. They do it as a community. That's how they defeat lions. They do it together as a community. And it's interesting. One of them was quoted saying, I know if the lion comes at me to attack me and he falls on me, my fellow warriors will fall on the lion. That's how we survive. That's what it's meant to look like within the church. When we are struggling to humble ourselves because we're struggling to trust in God's mighty hand, to trust in his faithful wisdom, to trust in his loving heart. We need to be around a community that says, no, though you can't see his hand, you trust his heart. And we encourage one another, we defend one another from those lies that are being whispered by the evil one to us. 
This is what happened in the life of Christ. You got to remember, as the, the adversary, the devil came against Christ, he came at him not with not with a sword, and not with like goblins. How did the evil one come at Christ? With deception and lies. That's how the evil one attacks us. And so Peter tells us that the final application, you want to resist the evil one, then stand firm in your faith, which is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah that we'll get to next week or maybe the week after that. But be firm in your faith, which is trusting in the truth of God's word. This is what Jesus did. When the enemy came at him with all these lies of, God's not going to provide for you, you're hungry. Just don't trust him. You make your own bread. When the enemy came to him and says, hey, don't, don't listen to God's will and God's way. The Father doesn't have your best in mind. This is an easier way. Take this route. Don't listen to those things. Do things your own way. And Jesus could have chose pride, but instead he chose humility, and he stood firm in his faith. And every one of those temptations that the evil one brought against him, in Matthew chapter 4, every time Jesus responds to these temptations and says, it is written, quoting the Bible to fight against that lie that's being whispered to him. Oh, we need to stand firm in our faith with the truth of God. To go into a spiritual battle and just say, I'm going to resist this addiction. I've got enough tenacity. I've got enough strength. I've got everything together. You're going to fall. You're going to fail. That's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's not going to work out well. You need a community together to strengthen. You need the truth of God's word that you would hide it in your heart, that you would treasure it, that you would war against these things. We would fight against these lies. It's the only thing we have is our offense, the spirit and the word of God. We would love it. What Jesus has modeled for us, let us reflect in our life. As Jesus warred against the, the lies of the adversary with the truth of the word of God, may we do the same. So how's your time in the word? Are you treasuring it? Are you delighting in it? Are you loving it? Are you hiding in your heart that you wouldn't sin against him? Are you connected in the community or do you have a million reasons of why you don't need community or why you're better than community? Oh, well, we remember this passage. He's looking for someone to devour. And may we connect well with community. The last instruction that Peter's going to give us as he closes this letters, as he closes this letter, is come to Christ. Come to Christ. I'm thankful for where, where God takes us in verse 10. Because you can read those first few and be like, man, I still struggle with pride in my heart. I struggle with that. Or maybe you're like, I struggle with anxiety. You're telling me to resist the devil, but like that's hard. That's really difficult. And I, I, send, I tend to try to work against it and try to war against it, but I continue to fall and I continue to fail over and over again. And God's word says, I know, I know. And that's why I'm the God of all grace. Did you see that in verse 10? I'm the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, where we have been prideful, Christ was humble. Where we have been anxious, Christ cast all of his cares upon the Father. Where we gave in to the temptations of Satan, Christ resisted. 
Christ has perfectly fulfilled all of these things so that at our need we can come to him. I mean, realize this. Christ in his greatest hour of temptation on the earth in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and he casts his cares upon the Father. May this cup pass for me, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He's casting it on God. He perfectly resists temptation like we talked about in Matthew chapter 4. He could have give, given into the sin and instead he resists it in order to live the sinless, perfect life so that he could die in our place. He didn't just die for us, he died instead of us on the cross. And then he humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2 said he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. <laughs> this is the God of all grace. Where we fail, Christ fulfilled. So we don't climb ourselves up the ladder of holiness to reach God. No, we come to the God of all grace who has called us to him. That word for call in verse 10 in kind of church world, we might think, well, God has called somebody to the mission field to serve overseas. Or God has called somebody into ministry to be a pastor. But this right here is a, is, is a call speaking of like a message or an invitation to come. Not just for the pastor or for a missionary, but for all believers. For all who would believe that we would come and respond to his invitation. He tells us in verse 10, who is calling you? He's calling you to something good, to an eternal glory in Christ. When we were wandering away, he was faithfully calling. When we were hiding from him, he was faithfully seeking us. May we hear his voice calling to us today and admit our need for him believe in him and confess our sins to him and he'll forgive us. Why? Because he's the God of all grace. You can never be too far gone. You can never out God's grace. He's the God of all grace. And as we receive that invitation, as we come to Christ, the blessings that we find in verse 11 or verse 10, last part, are beautiful. It says that he will restore, he will confirm, he will strengthen, he will establish for verbs right here that are cascading together of this beautiful symphony of what Christ will do for us as we receive his invitation. He'll restore. We look at this broken world that's been milled up by sin, and Christ will make it new when he comes again. This is the 12th time that Peter's talked about the coming of Christ. And when he comes, he will restore and make things new. We, we trust in that. We plant our faith firmly in that. He's coming again. To fix all the things that are broken and wrong. All the injustices he will make right. He will also confirm, tells us. And I'm thankful for this because so, so often we talk about the faith that we stand firm in. But this confirmation means that our faith one day will become sight. That we're not blindly trusting in faith forever. No, one day our faith will come sight. And we'll see all this fulfilled and all these promises made right and true. But he'll also strengthen and establish us as we walk through this difficult world now. When we think we can't make it, he lifts us up and strengthens us. When this world is unstable and we don't know where kind of our footing is, he will establish us. He will firmly plant our feet in his truth. This is the blessing that God offers to any who would respond to his call and look to him and to trust in him. These four verbs are intended to remind all believers 
that he will sustain us in our deepest suffering and temptation. Why? Because we have a living hope through the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you have that living hope in him? I pray that you do. Bow your heads with me. If you don't have that living hope, now is the time. The invitation is set. God has called. He's invited you. He's the God of all grace whose heart is big and loving towards you, whose mighty hand has made a way for you to be saved through the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. And so come, come to Christ today. Respond to him. Pray that God would save you from your sins and that you would treasure him for all of eternity. And for us that are believers, let us be obedient to this passage. May we humble ourselves to consider Christ more, to consider others more. May we resist the enemy by being watchful and sober-minded, by being connected into community, by honoring and treasuring your word as we're firm in our faith. Lord, would you help us with that? Lord, and as we close out this, this series on the book of 1 Peter, Lord, may we end it where the book started, by praising you. Praising you because according to your great mercy, not our great works, your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's through that miracle of grace that now all believers have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. So, Lord, to you, the giver of hope and a living hope, be all power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Church, let's stand now. Let's sing to this God who is worthy of all glory.